I love that video. I feel like it brings the weight and the cosmic nature of this passage kind of to the front, right? That Jesus is over all. He's preeminent. And that's what we're studying this weekend. The Christ hymn, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Christ is preeminent over all. Christ in his rightful place. And so just as a reminder of that theme, as we see Christ for who he truly is, the goal of the weekend is that all of us would gather around Christ and we would bow our knee in our lives before him as Lord. And as we comprehend him, it would lead to worship. I think um, as I worked on and prayed over these verses and thought about you all, application, man, the thing that came to the top of my heart was just that we would worship Christ for who he truly is with all that we are coming before all that he is. So we might talk about that some this morning. Um, the main theme this morning, we're going to look at the first stanza of the hymn, which is three verses, 15, 16, and 17. And the main theme is that Christ is preeminent over all creation. And so let me read those three verses, and then we'll just walk through them one verse at a time. So you can open your Bibles with me. Uh, Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This first stanza is packed. I mean, every phrase of this is theologically dense and filled with cosmic claims about Jesus. And so I just want to walk through those um, systematically. There in verse 15, the first thing that the hymn claims about Jesus is that he is the image of the invisible God. And an astute reader of the Bible would think quickly of what? It's the image of the invisible God. Any ideas? Yeah, Genesis. So right away, hold on. I thought humans were made in the image of God. And the very beginning of Scripture, Genesis 1, 27, 26 and 27, talks about humanity, male and female, being made in the image of God. We were made, we were the crown jewel. Humanity is a crown jewel of creation. Um, we were made to rule the creation with God. And then the image of God was broken. And so now... This hymn, it's like tying into the humanity of Christ, that he's in the image of God, but it's also claiming that he is the perfect representation of God. So this theology of Jesus is the God-man. He's fully God and he's fully man. Is just right here in these first few words. This word um, image in the Greek is icon, and it means copy or likeness. So one scholar wrote about this verse that Jesus is the very stamp of God the Father. He's the perfect image, the exact likeness of God. This reminds me of Philippians 2, verse 6, where there it says that Christ is in very nature or in very form God. Or Hebrews 1, 3, which says this on the screen. He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's a beautiful verse that echoes with this hymn as well. Um, Another commentator wrote about this verse that Paul or the hymn is emphasizing that Christ is both the perfect representation and manifestation of God. And I think John 1.8 says it perfectly. I don't have this on the screen, just listen. John 1.8, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So Jesus, the image of the invisible God, reveals God to us. So that's the first claim, right? This thing is dense, okay? In the same verse, in verse 15, it also says Christ is the firstborn of all creation. And this can be confusing. Some people have taken this to say Christ is a created thing. But what what, uh, the hymn has in mind here is this idea from um, ancient culture called primogeniture. And what that means is, in that culture, the firstborn son had all the inheritance rights, was the leader and authority under the father. And so Christ, being the firstborn of creation, really what this is saying is Christ will inherit all the creation, that he is supreme over it all. He's the leader of it all. He is exalted in rank above every created thing. All creation, in essence, belongs to Christ. That's what being the firstborn of all creation means. And then, verse 16, why? You see right there, 16 begins with four. And so now 16 is explaining why does Jesus deserve to be the firstborn of all creation and have all of this authority. And here it is. This is an amazing claim. We're going to have to just pause here. This claim is that all things were created by Christ. That's what verse 16 tells us. That Jesus is the source of everything. This is kind of a wild claim because Jesus walked the earth as a man, but he is the source of everything. Um, In my life group through our church, uh, one of the guys in our group has a a nicer telescope. I don't know how nice exactly, but a little more power. And we had a clear night. We had guy time, girl time. The girls were on the the patio um, just sharing our hearts and praying for one another. And then he's like, guys, you got to check this out. Saturn is really close, and Jupiter is really close, and you can see Saturn's rings right now. And so that night, we all gathered around, and he focused it on Saturn. We saw the rings, and then he focused it on Jupiter, and you could see, I think it was four moons. Was it, Robbie? Was it four? So these moons, I mean, they were so bright. You could see the little dot that was Jupiter, but the moons were just so bright around Jupiter, and it was amazing. And did you know that Saturn's rings, the rings around Saturn, are 500,000 miles in circumference around the planet, but they're one foot thick. And you can see them with a cheap telescope. That's insane. That is amazing. Jesus did that. Or think about this. This, is, uh, this might gross you out. This is a little more Kansas, maybe, than in California, but in one square mile of rural land, there are more insects than there are humans on the, the face of the earth. That's crazy. 
with just one square mile of Kansas. We got tons of bugs. <laughs> and Jesus did that. Did you know that? Jesus made those. That's the claim here. Or consider this, in, in a human chromosome, one human chromosome, there are 20 billion bits of information. This is what makes us distinct from each other. All of our uh, physical traits and, and just everything about us that makes us unique. One of those, there's 20 billion bits of information. If you wrote all of this information out in common English, it would fill like 4,000 volumes just in one chromosome. And Jesus is the author of that. Jesus did that. Every grain of sand on the California coastline, actually on the whole earth, every star, every galaxy, every animal, every insect, all the mass and matter that is in existence today originates from Christ. That's what verse 16 is claiming. That's pretty big. It's a big claim. Then Paul goes on in verse 16, and he starts to categorize things because he wants, this hymn just wants to elicit worship of Jesus. And so it goes on and it says, in heaven, everything in heaven, everything on the earth, I mean everything, everything visible, everything you've ever seen or you could see, everything that's invisible. And then he lists out thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities there in verse 16. And so this is the language that some scholars think Um, Either Paul wrote this hymn for the Colossians and their situation, or he took the hymn that they knew and he added this this right here because this is really distinct to to what they were going for because the language here, thrones, is communicating human authority, right? Like Caesar in his day. So Caesar had complete control, complete power over the empire. Anything Caesar said happened. And, And Paul is saying, no, Jesus is the source of that throne. And then these other three words, dominions, um, let's see what they are, dominions, rulers, authorities, these are actually Greek words that that talk about spirits, like um, demonic spirits. And this was part of what the Colossian church was kind of falling prey to, this message of spiritual power that was not found in Christ, that could be found in other things, superstition. And we see that around the world. I actually took a, a, a trip to Turkey. And in Turkey, they're very superstitious of um, evil spirits. And so there's this thing in Turkey called the evil eye. Has anyone seen the evil eye? And so if anything is good, a Turk will put the evil eye on it to try to ward off evil spirits because if there's covetousness at all, then that releases power in the spiritual realm and evil spirits will come and take that Thing And so you'll see little babies and they'll have an evil eye sticker on their cheek. Or if someone thinks they have a nice car, they'll put an evil eye on their rear view mirror. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy. You see it everywhere because they're so afraid of the dark spiritual powers. And really, I think in America, um, we've kind of like cleaned up the spiritual realm a little too much. The Bible actually presents a spiritual realm that is populated with a lot of angels and demons and Satan and God. And so I think this is pretty powerful to think about any demonic power is subservient to Jesus. Like there is no argument here. There's no power, whether human, whether it's Caesar or any American authority, there's no power that that did not originate from Christ. 
Jesus has complete authority. I think we see this, especially the, the demonic aspect of it, we see it so clearly in the Gospels. I mean, let's, let's just think about Mark chapter 5, the story of the demoniac. Um, this man possessed by demons, like when Jesus asked him, what's your name? He said, legion, because we are many, right? It's a really scary story. This man uh, was naked and chained, but he would break the chains, and um, he was tormented by demons. He ran screaming at Jesus. No one tried to control this man, but when he encountered Christ, he was on his face, and the demons were begging Jesus to have mercy on them. And so there is no power that is not under Christ. He is over all. He ended up casting them into pigs. It was their idea. Really strange story when you think about it. Why would the demons want to go into the pigs? I don't really know. But they did. They asked, and Jesus said, okay, sure. And he healed that man and restored him. Similarly, you think about human authority. Jesus, when he's before Pilate at his trial, Pilate is trying to figure out why they should kill Jesus. And so Pilate's like, come on, just defend yourself. Tell me a little bit why we shouldn't kill you. And Jesus just calmly says, you know, you have no authority unless it's given to you by my Father. And Jesus just kind of flexes on, on Pilate in that moment. This is kind of crazy. And Pilate's like, hold on, don't you know I can have you killed? Jesus is like, no. This is not, it doesn't originate from you. There's nothing on earth that does not submit to Jesus' authority. That's crazy. Amazing. And then Paul ends, or the hymn ends, summarizing all these things, and it says, everything was created through Christ and for Christ. This is an amazing verse as well. And so this last, or this uh, fourth point here, Christ is not only the source of all things, he's also the goal of all created things. This reminds me of Philippians 2, 9 through 11. I have this on the screen. Therefore God has highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of creation is moving without fail towards this end of glorifying Christ. I remember when I was um, doing my undergraduate and um, I was memorizing this part of Philippians. And so um, we have this area at Kansas State. Um, we call it the quad, and it's like surrounded by four buildings. There's huge green space with lots of trees. And so I'm like memorizing this passage in Philippians 2 and praying over it. And then it's passing period. I'm moving from one class to another, and I just kind of stopped on the quad. And there had to be, I don't know, at least a 1,000 students just moving throughout this area. It's a pretty big area, but it was just full of people. And the Holy Spirit just put it on my heart. Like, if Jesus revealed himself in his true identity right now, if he, if, if he came back and established his kingdom, every knee would bow that I see without a thought. And some would bow in worship and in joy and ecstasy because the kingdom of God is here. And some would bow because they knew that he is who he is. And Philippians 2, it just moves my heart. I just stood there and kind of watched all these people walk, and I started praying and worshiping Christ, that he is deserving, he is worthy of the worship and the praise of every created thing. 
And that's where we're going in life. It also makes me think of Revelation 4 and 7. I mentioned these a little bit last night. These are the scenes where there's a throne in heaven and every uh, nation is represented. And even some of these strange uh, creatures, right, that have eyes all over them and wings. And we don't know what, they're, what they are, but they're just like crying out, holy, 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 all the time, day and night, worshiping Christ. And that's where the creation is headed. All things come through Christ, and then Christ is the end of all things. And then verse 17, the stanza ends with this really another bold claim saying, He is before all things, so Christ is pre-existent to the creation. And then in Christ, all things hold together. This is Man, not only is he the source and the end, but now he's the sustaining force that the universe is held together actively by Jesus. He's sustaining it as we speak. This morning, I, I got up early because I'm on central time, so I was up at 5.30 and just kind of laying there thinking about the day, praying for the day. And so then I thought, I'm just going to go for a walk. And so I walked up the trail a little bit and I thought, I want to walk until the sun hits me, right? Because we're in the mountains, so it's kind of difficult. I got up there a little bit, and just the, the sunrise just hitting my face. I just stood in it, because it's cold, and closed my eyes, and I just thought, Jesus is sustaining the creation right now. And the sun wouldn't rise without Jesus' active involvement in his creation. He is over it all. He sustains it. Douglas Moo writes about this verse, this. I've got this one on the screen. Moo says, this, verse 17, is a startling claim that a man who had recently lived and been crucified by the Romans was the one in whom all things held together. What holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person, the resurrected Christ. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbits. Another scholar puts it uh, really simply. He says, we live in a Christ-centric universe. Man, this stanza is amazing. And I hope you can enjoy it being out here in nature. Just go on a walk like I did and just think about the presence of Christ and what these verses are claiming about him. So let's talk briefly this morning about what I mentioned last night. I think there's a, a message in our culture, especially in academia. I'm sure that you felt this on your campus. Um, we feel it even in Kansas, this message that faith is for the weak-minded, that faith is for the fools, that if you have faith in Christ or in God, even intelligent design, that you are a science denier. Right? This is a common message on campus, and it's really strong. And it, what it does is it pits science or reason against faith. But I don't think that's accurate at all. And actually, I think that this message finds its origin um, in the pit of hell. I think this is coming from um, satanic influence, trying to influence people away from faith. Of course, faith is needed if you're going to believe in God and in Christ. If you're going to 
stake your life on verses like these, you're going to have to have faith. But that doesn't mean you're committing intellectual suicide. I'm convinced that atheism takes just as much faith as following Christ. Take just for example one aspect, this scientifically observed fact that the universe is expanding rapidly. And so this has been observed for a long time now. And to the best of our abilities, the, the preeminent scholars, the preeminent scientists have um, discerned that the universe is doing this. And so there's strong evidence from this that the origins of the universe move back and they have a moment of beginning. I'm talking about the Big Bang Theory, that if we retrace the expansion of the universe, we can suppose that it started at one moment, and since that moment, matter has been expanding, thus the name the Big Bang. At one moment, there was nothing, no matter, no stars, no planets, no earth, no humans, no life, and then in another moment, it all began. Now, this is no problem for a reader of the Scripture. It sounds a lot like Genesis 1, where God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, does it take faith to believe Genesis 1? Of course it does. None of us were there. So we don't know, but it, it takes faith. But let me tell you, the atheist somehow must explain how there was no cause or no source for this cataclysmic, cosmic event. That takes a lot of faith. Like, what, how does that happen? We don't see that happening anywhere else. And so scientists who are opposed to faith, despite their initial reluctance, they have had to accept the validity of some of this, the Big Bang. So Einstein is quoted as saying that this, um, finding out these discoveries was irritating. A British astronomer, Eddington, he called it repugnant. And then an MIT physicist, Philip Morrison, said he would like to reject it, but they can't. So, so they have to deal with the implications of it, and it takes great faith. There's a book written in the early 90s called God and the Astronomers by Robert Jastrow. Listen to this quote as he talks about um, these discoveries that, um, that have been made. He writes this. It's on the screen. Now we see how the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. The details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. Now focus in on this part. I think this is brilliant. This is a, a, a believer who's writing this book. So I think it's really funny. He says, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> it's like, welcome. Yeah, this is what the Bible says. Or consider um, another aspect of our universe, how fine-tuned the universe is for life to exist. The more that scientists investigate the fine-tuning of the universe, I think they become more and more astounded that life is really here. The factors and, and just the, the minute details. And so this is really hard for atheists to 
to deal with. There's an atheist uh, cosmologist named Fred Hoyle, and he wrote this. Um, I don't have the full context of this quote, but, but this quote I think is, is kind of alarming. He says, it is as if a super intellect, which we have a word for that, right? That'd, that'd be God. So he says, it's as if a super intellect has monkeyed <laughs> with physics as well as with chemistry and biology, and there remain no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The evidence, there, there is reasonable faith. Even though Hoyle was unsympathetic to the idea that God created the universe, he acknowledged that the contemporary evidence is better explained by the idea of divine creation, or as he would call it, a super intellect, doing monkeying, with things, I just call that creation by God, right? But um, rather than by happenstance. Okay, so for about the last, I don't know, five or 10 minutes, we've wandered into what is called apologetics. And I would say, this is not my specialty. I enjoy it. I took a class in seminary in it. Um, it was really impactful in my faith because really what it serves is it, it helps us to have foundation that we can say, okay, it's reasonable to believe. It's still gonna take faith. I would point you to William Lane Craig. Um, that's the guy that I studied in seminary. He's a great apologist. Um, he has a, a website called reasonablefaith.org. He also wrote a book called Reasonable Faith. And if you want to kind of dive into the, the details of, of all of this, some of the things I mentioned, but, but much, much more, I would point you to William Lane Craig. He's a great resource. Um, I love listening to him because he makes apologetics really personal. He actually tells his testimony often when he does apologetics, and it's, it's really powerful. So if what we just did for the last five to ten minutes kind of got your gears going, and William Lane Craig, go, go talk to him. So if you want to talk to me afterwards, I'll do my best. This is not my, my expertise spot. But Colossians 1, 15 through 17 makes these epic cosmic claims about the origins of the universe and about Christ. He is preeminent over the creation. It comes from him. It is for him, and he sustains it. Okay, how do we apply these verses, right? This is like theoretical stuff. It's big stuff. It's out there stuff. And I think what I mentioned there's not a whole lot of like specific application, but I do want to call you to worship. Just think about this. Let's think about moments in the gospel narrative where Jesus um, was walking around and where nature or creation obeyed his voice. One of the first I can think of is the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2, where Jesus Somehow, I guess it doesn't say that he spoke to the water. We don't really know. But the water changed its molecular composition in an instant, and it became wine. This is a miracle. Think about that moment where um, he's in a boat, and the storm is about to, to, to kill them. And so the, the disciples, many of them were like professional um, fishermen who knew this very lake like the back of their hand. They're afraid for their lives. And Jesus is taking a nap, which is a very strange detail. I, I would love to know why. I think he wanted to, to test their faith and see what they thought about him. 
And so then he just gets up and says a word to the storm and to the, the, the waves, and they're calmed. Or this moment where Jesus walks on the water. What is that about? Or these moments where he feeds 5,000 people or more. These moments where the creation submits to him. And as I've thought about this and just thought about worshiping Christ, those moments, we would call them miracles. And a lot of people struggle with these moments in the scripture. They want to dismiss them and say that they're just myth, but not at all. I think it's, the, it's core to the claims of Christ and his deity that these are real accounts. They happened. And the way that we make sense of them is Colossians 1, 15 through 17, that when the creation hears the voice and the command of Christ, it is not a supernatural thing. It's the most natural thing for the creation to obey his voice because it was made by him. It's underneath his authority. And so just in an instant, water becomes wine because it's Jesus. This is the claim of our scripture, and this, lead, this should lead our hearts to worship Christ. Worship, that's my, that's my main application this morning, that you would see your life through the lens of gratitude. Think about this, you don't think about your heart working, right? It's just a, an impulse. Jesus did that. You have lungs that breathe, and you can think about your lungs, but most of the time you don't. And you just breathe. You actually go to sleep and your body heals itself. That's because of Jesus. So every like, legitimate function of your body is a gift from Christ. And that should lead your heart to gratitude. Like, thank you, God, I woke up today. Thank you, God, that my body heals, that I can remember anything, that I can even know you. So much worship should come out of this as we meditate deeper and deeper on it. So I would give you um, just a, a practical thing to do is to go to the Psalms. And if we have time, we might end up having time this morning. We might do that as, as a worship moment. But Psalm 19, I would add to this list, Psalm 104, systematically, the psalmist there just kind of walks through everything he's encountered in creation. He just thinks about creation. It's a long psalm. And he just like writes Worshipful moments, ascribing glory to God for the creation. Psalm 33, likewise, uh, meditates on the creation and worships God. So, what a great application. You're up here in this beautiful place. Go on a walk, take your Bible, read one of these Psalms, and just write out a worshipful paragraph to Christ. And say, Christ, you are the source. You are the end. You sustain all of this. And worship him. Okay, my next application from these three verses, I would say, is confidence. And I get this from a, a couple different places. One of them, I would say, this mentioning of the thrones, the rulers, the dominions, the authorities. So these spiritual words and the thrones is probably talking about Caesar or like human authority. Man, our world is chaos, right? It's chaos politically, um, it's chaos, like even sometimes it feels like natural disasters, right? It feels chaotic. We can have confidence that Jesus is over everything. He is sovereign. He is in control. And even if, um, I mean, it could get really, 
really bad in, in our country, right? So in Paul's day, he's in prison for his faith. And he has great confidence in the Lord and in the Lord's power over all creation. And so no matter what happens, we can have confidence in the power and the authority of Christ. As Psalm 27 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I think when we, when we see Christ in his rightful place as over everything, um, fear and anxiety they really do just, they go away because we have confidence and hope in his coming kingdom and in his presence. And the last thing I would say is purpose. Our lives find their meaning when we see Christ rightly because he has made us for him. So it says all things were created by him and for him. That includes you. You, the individual you, just how God made you, all of the uniqueness of you, you were made by Christ and you were made for Christ and Christ holds you together. And I think when we see Christ in his rightful place over us, um, I think deep down our souls find a home. Our lives begin to make sense. We make our decisions um, just what John was talking about in his testimony. We start to see our future through Christ. We start to see where, what's our purpose? Like, what did God make me for? Who, what are my giftings? What am I uniquely good at? How can God use my life? Where has he put me? Where am I headed? And your life begins to make sense because it's based in Christ overall. He gives us purpose. This is what we were made for. We were made for um, bringing glory to Christ. Okay, here's how I want to end. I'm going to invite the worship team back up on stage so you guys can come up now. And what I'd like to do is everyone else, let's stand up. And, and if, if you have a copy of the scriptures, because I don't have Psalm 33 on the screen, so just open your Bible, stand up, open your Bible to Psalm 33. And worship team... Keyboardist, what's your name? Sam. Sam. Nice to meet you, Sam. Whenever you're ready, start the next song with just some nice stuff, whatever you're going to do. Just make it a nice moment. <laughs> I need Sam. I need Sam. And here's what I want us to do. I want us to worship Christ. So the Psalms were written before Christ, but they point to Christ. Um, we just actually, Robbie gave a, gave a great message this semester on Psalm 22. I mean, wow. Psalm 22 is like looking towards the cross hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever invented. It's wild. But we're doing Psalm 33. So what I want to do is read this as a worship moment. He's still talking. He's trying to figure it out. I should have talked to Sam before this moment. He's like, what are we going to do? Okay, so he's going to get it. Here we go. Let's read this in a worshipful spirit, pointing our hearts to Jesus Christ, the God-man, the source and the end of all creation who sustains it all. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. 
Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of 10 strings. So we have six, but this works. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Genesis 1. And by his breath, by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in family. And then this is the application of Psalm 33. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Amen. Let's worship. Let's close the morning in worship.